Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today, we're going to be talking about the most famous building in the entire world. It's always nice when you can use a superlative that you're pretty confident might actually be true. I think it's the most recognisable building in the world. It was the tallest building in the world for nearly 4,000 years. I'm, of course, talking about the Great Pyramid of Giza, just outside Cairo in Egypt. It was built in around 2500 BC, making it 4,500 years old. It was the oldest, the so-called Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, and it's the only wonder that has remained largely intact. But that's probably because a pyramid is a naturally, incredibly sturdy structure. That's why they built them. And it is made out of 2.3 million large stone blocks. It's basically just a huge cone of stone weighing about 6 million tonnes in total. So it's quite hard to damage, to steal or to take apart. It was built probably over a generation or two, perhaps 30 years, as the tomb of the pharaoh Khufu. And the weird thing about the pyramid is it's only part of a giant funerary complex for Khufu. There were two mortuary temples. There were tombs for his immediate family, members of his court. There were three mini pyramids nearby for Khufu's wives and friends. My favourite part, there were five flat-packed buried solar barges, one of which has been reconstructed and put back together and which I think is a wonder on the scale of the pyramid itself. I've seen the pyramid many times. I've crawled through tunnels inside it and underneath it. And truly, it remains one of the most wonderful things ever created by human beings. One of my favourite pub quiz questions, which sadly may not be true, is that the Great Pyramid was the tallest building on Earth until it was overtaken, arguably, by Lincoln Cathedral. Weren't expecting that, were you? Lincoln Cathedral, which apparently could have had a 160 metre high, over 500 feet high central spire, which was built in 1311. Now, we're not sure it was that tall. That's the problem. It may have been that tall. The spire collapsed in 1548 and it was never rebuilt, sadly. But it's a great fact, if it's true. (laughs) Joining me on the podcast to talk about the wonder that is the Great Pyramid, is a woman who spent a lot of time there. She is a national treasure. She's a legend of screen and the written page. She's Bethany Hughes, TV presenter, broadcaster, thought leader, writer. She's written a new book called The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Uh, she was on the podcast a little while ago talking all about that. But here she is back talking about one in particular, the Great Pyramid. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Bethany Hughes, thank you for coming on. So lovely to be here and chatting to you. We're talking about the uh, building. Yes. I mean, this is it. Yeah, it is. It's one of the most extraordinary buildings on the planet. You and I have been to it. I've been to it so many times I can't remember. But every time I go, I'm just on the floor with awe. And, and let's start with its age, because it's basically a contemporary of sort of Stonehenge. I mean, it's fantastically ancient. It is. So this is the Great Pyramid of Giza, Khufu's Pyramid, King Khufu's Pyramid. And we have to remember, he was the ruler of Egypt, but they haven't started to call them pharaohs yet, so he's still a king. Can I just tell you a very exciting thing about the age? Well, so, yes. Yeah, because if we'd been speaking six months ago, I'd have gone, yep, yeah, you know, it's 4,500 years old. We think it's 100 years older oh than goodness. we thought before. So we think it's 4,600 years old um, because there's this extraordinary cache of documents uh, on the Red Sea at a place called Wadi al-Jaf, which is a current archaeological site. I mean, it's just like a dream. I'm just, it's actually making my mouth water talking to you about that. It's weird, isn't it? But it's so amazing. So it's this site of um, 31 cave complexes on the Red Sea coast. They're 100 uh, feet deep. And they've discovered all these papyri oh from God, the time heaven. of the building of the Great Pyramid. I mean, that's fantastically old writing, isn't it? It is I mean, fantastic. So it's the oldest inscribed papyri that we've discovered to date. And up until now, people said, oh, you know, the thing about the pyramid, we know it's amazing, but we don't know how they built it. We don't know who built it. We do now. We've got their names. So we've got details of the work that they did. Um, there's a guy called Mera, M-E-R-E-R, is you know, how it transliterates. And he's in charge of 40 workers and boatmen. And it's this really, really, really detailed log of shipping the raw materials to build Khufu's Great Pyramid. You're blowing my mind. I had no idea. That's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And, and just, yeah, just even pausing on the fact that we have writing from that period, because I mean, that's thousands of years before Homer was written down. Yeah. I mean, it's mind boggling. It is. It is totally mind boggling. And what's the... it doing there in this cave? <laughs> and, well, because this is one, a port, like a Red okay. Sea port, where they would. On the Egyptian shore. On the Egyptian the... shore, okay, yeah, um, with a kind of sister port on the other side on the coast of what's now Arabia, which would keep an eye on the okay. Egyptian port to check it wasn't being attacked by pirates or, you know, there was loads of, it was tough. The Red Sea was a tough environment then Imagine that. as it is now. So this is somewhere that would import all those incredible things like incense probably coming from Southern Arabia. And the preservation is so extraordinary there because it's on the coast and it's within the sands. So we've got ship's rope from 4,500 years ago and little sort of fragments of sailcloth and shoes from the people who are manning these ships. So it's an extraordinary find. And if you can jigsaw puzzle together that new evidence with the work that's being done on the Giza Plateau itself, it looks as said like it's almost certainly nudging the date of the Great Pyramid back 100 years. Does that mean we have to nudge Khufu back as well? I think so it we've... does. Yeah, it does. So it's it's going to be very annoying for everybody who's written a book. That is super annoying. <laughs> in, Thoughts in, and prayers for our know, Egyptology the last friends. thousand years. Exactly. Oh exactly. But you know, it's good. That's what you, again, you know, you, you and I share this. It's what I love about archaeology and history, that it's so dynamic. Oh, it's just evolving the whole time. Electrifying. It's just... So raw materials were being shipped from the Red Sea because I've always thought they came from a quarry quite nearby. So where do we now think this stuff was coming well, from? Well, so you're absolutely right. So the sort of bulk of the pyramid, so the limestone blocks, there are 2.3 million limestone blocks that make up the pyramid. Um, the bulk of those come from a quarry on the Giza Plateau itself. And you can still go and look down on that if you go to Egypt. Don't fall into it because it is a quarry. So, you know, you're staring 
going down. And the white casing of the pyramid is uh, from a quarry called Tura, Tura limestone. Right, cause, uh, so that because the big blocks that we see today, they were encased, weren't they? Yes. In a sort of shiny, beautiful. I mean, it must have been like a sort of sci-fi movie. Yeah. You've got the. Interestingly and importantly, not just the sands of the desert, because it was much closer to the Nile than it is so the now. Nile's moved. The, the pyramid, Nile- let's be clear, the pyramid has moved. Pyramid. Right, okay. <laughs> so the Nile's moved and it used to flood more, the Nile. So the pyramid would have been reflected in the waters of the, right. of the Nile. So it was a much kind of greener landscape than we imagine and, today. And during that annual flood, the water would have come right up to it. Yes. And that's how you, everything was about boats transporting heavy materials. It, exactly. Okay. And going back to our mate, Mera and his team of people who are transporting all these raw materials. So it's not the stone, but it's if you think if you build something, if you're a project manager, there's a whole load oh, of you, stuff. You need you, stuff. You need wood, you know, you yeah. need giant scaffolding, you need food supplies, rope, and, rope yeah. and all of this stuff that's coming in. So anyway, so the floodwaters of the Nile, because it's closer, then it would have risen by about seven metres at one point. So we think they're actually using the power of the floodwaters to raise some of those blocks. So it's not just for transport, they're actually using that hydraulic energy. Amazing. So we've got the blocks very nearby. Then this shiny outer casing is from sort of quite nearby. Yes. So my place called Tura, where you okay. can still go. And again, you can go and visit. There's, um, in fact, it was a kind of Egyptian Orthodox community who traditionally have been there. And, and there are still a few of them. They've made homes, some of them, out of the ancient quarry. So you can go and, you know, if anybody wants to go and visit that in Cairo. So you can see where that came from too. What was the top? Benben, the Benben stone. Okay. So, so there's this sort of mounting cat stone that was probably covered in electrum, so a sort of mixture of gold and silver, I'm sure bronze as well. And so that would have gleamed out and it would have caught the sun. So I mean, you know, it's just all bonkers, basically, when you think about it. It would have been astonishing today. And we live in a world where we know that we can put a drone on Mars. Yes. And so what would it have been like four and a half thousand years ago? It would have yeah. blown people's minds. Would have blown their minds. Almost 500 feet tall. I mean, it's still the heaviest constructed building on Earth. I'm waiting for the letters to come in when somebody tells me, but it's 6.5 million tonnes. And as far as I know, I did a lot of research for the book. There isn't a heavier building that's been made. So it was this kind of behemoth, absolute gargantuan statement about humans' ability to do things and make things. And the pyramid itself is a very strong structure, isn't it? That's why it's never been fallen down, I guess, in the earthquakes and things. It's pretty solid. That's right. I mean, so there's a tiny bit of earthquake damage and there was this big earthquake in 1303, which actually also collapsed the Pharos Lighthouse of Alexandria, so one of the other seven wonders of the world. And that shook a lot of the casing stones okay. from it. So there would have been more casing stones up, you know, at the beginning of the 14th century. But yeah, apart from that, it's So it's not pretty, they were nicked. Well, I'm sure they were, but it's actually they got shaken they off. Got, okay, yeah, they got, they got shaken off by the earthquake. And the other damage, of course, is from us gorgeous humans blasting our way in, in the yes. uh, 19th century to try to see if there was treasure inside. So people dynamited the entrances to try and get in. Right. Very bad. Very smart. Well yeah. done then. So what else is in these texts? Is there any sort of idea about why? we Have we learned more about why it's there? Not from those texts. So they're pretty, you know, they're the kind of logbook of okay. logistics. So again, not yet, but never say never. There could be something. Because what you also have are these um, hundreds of inscribed anchors with names on. So we might get a hint. There might be a prayer on one of those or something. But okay, so why was it built? 
I'm really going to put my neck out there and say it wasn't built by aliens. I know that some people, I know, you know, stay with me because uh, it's still exciting. It was built for Khufu, the king. It was built as this extraordinary tomb. But more than that, it was a resurrection machine because you have to try to shift your mind back to the ancient Egyptian worldview. And for them, really fascinatingly, they got there four and a half thousand years before we did. We're now scientifically realizing that we're a natural part of the cosmos. You know, all that stuff that we're made up of stardust, you know, that every carbon molecule in our body has come from outer space at some point. And the Egyptians knew that instinctively. They didn't necessarily know it scientifically, but they knew it spiritually. They knew that we were part of the cosmos. And so the notion was that the great king of the United Egypts could never die. So he has his mortal death, he's mummified, he's buried with all his belongings, and then he will resurrect and join the cosmos and travel through the universe and the stars and the sky to ensure that the world keeps on turning. You know, So they just sort of thought that we were very wrapped up in the beat and the pulse and the energy of the cosmos as we are. You know, I don't want to kind of, the cosmos can do without us, but we are absolutely part of its natural cycle. So that's why they build it so that he can ascend to the stars. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. Don't give up on us just yet. There's more coming. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, They shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Apply. 
were there other little pyramids before? Or is this a brand new idea? No. So there are there have been other pyramids before. Snefru, Sneferu, for instance, builds one, and uh, the stepped pyramid is famous in Saqqara. The red pyramid. So there have been really good experiments with pyramids. And again, I think we're sometimes we can go like, yeah, but they they weren't all perfect. And then we get the Great Pyramid, and that's perfect. They're not bad, well, <laughs> you know, as a superstructure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's one called the Bent Pyramid. I don't know if you've seen it, which does look weird, frankly, because it's like a normal pyramid shape, and then it becomes this slightly sort of disappointing tip, Dan. So, and Khufu goes, I don't want my pyramid to look like that. I want it to be perfect. So he obviously hires other engineers and has another go. And, you know, whoever, there would have been a brilliant mathematical mind who worked on that. Say that again. And do we have any idea how long it would have taken? Yeah. So um, a generation, so about 25 years, basically most of Khufu's lifetime. So sort of between 21 and 25 years. Well, did, did he see it complete? He would have seen it, we think, pretty much complete. We're told that he was active in laying out its footprint so that he went to the Giza Plateau in this kind of amazing religious ceremony and worked out where it would go. So we think he would have seen its rising and we think it was probably completed before he died. And when he died, there would have been this extraordinary procession of pomp and ritual, taking that mummified body with priests around. There was a sort of uh, covered walkway that he'd have gone through. You know, then there were, would have been walls, perimeter yes, walls. Yes, there was an enclosure, wasn't there? There yeah. was an enclosure, so hugely high walls. Some people think as high as eight metres tall. So it would have looked very different to how it does today. So, I mean, can you imagine how, well, both how exciting and how weird psychologically. I don't think it can be good for you as an individual, to look at something as big as that and think, it's all for me. Betty, I think we're learning that um, extraordinary amounts of power is not great for us little old humans. No. I think we've plenty of examples there, haven't we? I know. So he died in a, he was, you know, I was just going to say he died in a tomb that kept him safe, but of course he didn't because his body's not there right. and all the treasure's been robbed. So actually the whole point of it didn't work anyway. But um, I genuinely wonder whether sometimes he'd have looked at it from the Valley Temple and gone, oh, what have I started? Yeah. Or like, uh, you know, is this a crazy idea? A, is it going to work practically? And also, but is this a good thing for me to be doing spiritually? Yeah. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe he wasn't bothered by doubt at all. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, if he was a teenager, probably not. Yes. Um, what, when you've been inside it, you've crawled through all the pastures and done amazing things. Are we really confident we know how the building worked in itself? Like where he was, where his stuff was? Well, you know, there's the rub because but there's a great king's chamber, which has got this giant uh, red granite sarcophagus in it, in this kind of incredible lined room. And that's in theory where he was buried. But we know that above that, there's this mysterious gap, this void that's been identified by an amazing Japanese and Egyptian team working together. And that's going to be explored pretty soon. That could be where he's actually buried. I mean, it's definitely a void. So was the king's chamber, was that a massive sort of decoy so that all the robbers who came in went, oh, you know, I've arrived and maybe it was somebody else's body and like, you know, second rate treasure. And he's still oh, there up at the top. Bethany, that's an extraordinary thought. So you, you, there could be a, well, we could get another wonderful pharaonic experience you, in our lifetime. It's not, it's not impossible. Not, not impossible. Well, that's enough for me yeah so like i mean tutankhamun on a grand scale buried with stuff buried with what do we think was in there well it must have been you know if you think what tutankhamun who's a kind of pretty minor in some ways sort of failed imperial ruler 
I think you've gone and looked at his the stuff in his tomb. We've both been in those. Can we just say that we are the luckiest people? I'm for we're sure. some of the luckiest people on on earth because when I stood in front of Tutankhamun's, not just his gold, but his duck-shaped lunch boxes mm. and his childhood toys and his walking sticks yep. and you know leaves herbs yeah, that were left and you're in the lab with the people conserving them it's just a huge privilege it's isn't a it? huge oh. privilege and it really you know it, it helps you to understand that world and connect you to all those people who lived all that time ago i think that would have been small fry in comparison to what into, yeah. went into Kufi's tomb it's certainly like i actually don't know but it's sort of 20 times bigger the chamber you know where the sarcophagus currently is so yeah he would have been buried with loads of treasure and we get a little hint of that because his mother was buried in a sort of mini pyramid nearby which which was only discovered in the, the contents in the 20th century. And it's exquisite. I mean, it's really? all the exquisite stuff that you'd expect. Inlaid furniture and gold and crystal and, you right. know, oh, it's really amazing. So, but there isn't a scrap, as far as we know, left in the Great Pyramid. And do we know when it would have been first penetrated, robbed? I mean, are there later pharaohs going, oh, poor old Khufu? Or did, yeah. it, did it endure for quite a while? Again, we can't put a date on it. We know that there's a robber's tunnel that goes in pretty early because that's what, if anybody goes to the pyramid, that's what you go through. Oh, you're is going, that right? you're, yeah, you're going through the robber's entrance. So if you think about it, if you look at it, there's that sort of gabled ceremonial entranceway and we go in just to the right okay. of it, which was where the robbers went in as well. So it was pretty early. And you were risking a lot because if you were discovered having robbed a, a pharaoh's tomb or a king's tomb, you know, you'd be impaled. It was not... It was not a, good, not a good way to die. So we don't know. And there are these slightly kind of fanciful writings from the medieval period saying, oh, it's full of eggs made of solid gold and emeralds and crystals. Some people say Alexander the Great was buried there, but I think that is all a bit made up. But the Alexander the Great thing is interesting because that does imply, and in your brilliant book, The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, you talk about the afterlife of that pyramid. I mean, everyone's been obsessed with it ever since. They have. Because it's been so, you can't disguise it. It's not one of these ones that's been lost and rediscovered. Exactly. So every generation has had their own stories and relationship with that building. Completely, completely. And I've got to say that has been one of the deep joys of writing the book is tracking the story of the other travellers and tourists who've gone to visit it through time. There's my new favourite character in my life is a woman called Ageria in the fourth century and she's from Portugal and she goes by herself on a tour of the Holy Land. She might have been a nun, we don't know, but she comes from this kind of community of sisters and she writes a book, which is still in print, about her journey through the Holy Lands and she goes to the Great Pyramid and we should, um, you know, hold her to count because she's the person who says, oh, and by the way, that massive pyramid building, that was the uh, granary of Joseph. <sighs> and ever since then, I mean, for over a thousand years, it was known as the granary of Joseph and really? people thought it was, yeah, that it would sort of tied in with that Judeo-Christian religion and tradition. So if you go to St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, for instance, and you look at the representation of the Great Pyramid there, it is Joseph's granary with these little windows in it and kind of Joseph hanging around outside. I don't know. Anyway, so some of the travellers, you know, it was great that they went, but they shouldn't have written what they did. And then these Arabic travellers who go and do this really sort of detailed forensic analysis of the pyramid. Again, we have to remember this, that so many books have said that Robert Greaves from Oxford was the first person to scientifically analyse the pyramid. I mean, that was happening at least 300 years before with a guy called Al Idrissi, who says, we've got to understand how it was engineered, you know, the substance of the building, how it was made. So travellers have been, loads of people have climbed to the top. Um, I was just, just going to say, you've never done that. No. I've never, no, I've uh, always been very well behaved. Although yes. I think when I went as a kid with my parents, I think you were still allowed on it at that point. But yes. every time I've gone as a grown up, 
yes. TV person, it's been quite strict. Mishmumpkin, as they would say in Egypt, not good, not a, not a good idea. But you're right, sort of up until the 1930s, 40s, you have black and white pictures of people climbing up to the top of the pyramid to have a picnic. I mean, it's quite a climb, kind of in a way... Fair play to them because that's quite an achievement. But even in 1610, there's this fantastic account by a German writer, all carefully illustrated, showing these little kind of stick figures climbing up and climbing to the top of the pyramid. So it's been this tourist attraction for at least 4,000 years. And then in terms of, you mentioned people dynamiting their way inside. Yeah. At some stage... Do we know if ancients were going inside? Was it sort of an exciting mystery? Were people trying to get inside, Alexander the Great, Romans? Or is this something that we had to wait for the 19th century and Europeans armed with gunpowder? Yes. No, they definitely went in. Okay. And we know that because we've got bits of graffiti, Greek and Roman graffiti. So even if you go down, my sort of favourite and worst place in the world, when you crawl down it, right the way down in the thing called the Descending Passage, and you go right into the bedrock itself underneath the pyramid. And as people might know, I'm claustrophobic. I'm not scared of anything apart from the dark and small enclosed spaces. Well, it hasn't stopped you. It hasn't stopped me, but what a stupid <laughs> job I have. You know, I spend loads of my life in tombs. I mean, it's absolutely... And I'm slightly scared of snakes and scorpions, you know, and literally that's where they are. So this descending passage, you have to get in. I mean, it is like a nightmare. You have to crawl on your hands and knees eventually and it gets smaller and smaller. And then it opens up, thank goodness, into this chamber. But there's uh, some kind of soot graffiti there from the Greeks and Romans. So we know that they went in. And terrible graffiti up on chambers above where the king's sarcophagus is that is now called things like Davison's Chamber because loads of Brits went there and graffitied and it's named after them. So we should change that. But yeah, people have always had a go at the pyramid. But And then was it Belzoni? Who, who was using the dynamite? Because they were trying to get what? To the main burial chamber? Yeah, but Belzoni, I don't think for once, I don't think he did use okay. dynamite. But uh, some Brits did. So there's a man called Perring, for instance, who, yeah, was a bit over-enthusiastic in the way that he wanted to explore. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. How do people think that was a good idea? It's just hubris, I don't know. Mm, I don't know, strange, isn't it? Just, just, yeah, extraordinary. And then I guess there are still images of pyramids, there's still things called pyramids all over the world today. I mean, so Khufu didn't perhaps fulfil his primary purpose of mortality or whatever else, but... He created something, that an idea, a symbol that lasted forever. He did. And it makes me chuckle the fact that we talk about it as a pyramid because the ancient Egyptian for pyramid was mer, M-E-R, which means a place of ascension. And a pyramus is actually the Greek word for a little bun or a cake. Hmm. Because if you think about it, it is like bun-shaped. I guess so. Sort of a muffin, ancient Greek bun-shaped. So it's a giant bun, basically. But you're right, but it's the pyramid that has inspired so many around the world. You think of the glass pyramid in the in the Louvre. It's an idea that's kind of burns into our memory. And there's fantastic work at the moment now about epigenetics and us being born with memory. But even more than that, people now think we're born with something called symbolic inheritance, that we're born because generations worth of our ancestors have talked about the pyramids, for instance, and indeed the seven wonders, that we're born thinking about them, you know, that we sort of somehow like this, because if you think about it, it's nuts. The seven wonders don't really mean anything. They're extraordinary, but they're not really a thing. But we are sort of born somehow thinking that they matter. We need to know about them. We need to understand about them. And that could be that they are genetically within us, that we're born with this notion of the seven wonders of the ancient world mattering. Speaking of seven wonders, 
give the audience a quick sense of your top three picks for Bethany Hughes. It doesn't have to be on the Seven Wonders list, but where do you love visiting? Oh, God. well, again, can we be here for the next week yeah. talking about that? I it's just, the worst question. I, I'm so sorry. I, no, no. No, I thought you were going to ask me the worst question, which is which is the eighth wonder. Okay. Which I also haven't gotten off. I won't ask you that. I won't <laughs> ask you that but it would be, people who are listening to this podcast, please write to both of us and say which you would nominate for your eighth wonder. Okay, I will answer that because... I don't have a top three, but three things that bring me nothing other than joy are travelling by boat to sites. Well, obviously. Not because it's just quite a lot of fun, but because that's how people got around Most the Most of the time, world. that's how people arrived, yeah. Good so point. you're kind of, I did this um, series about Odysseus and following, you know, Odysseus's trail. And it really helped me understand yeah. the Odyssey and Homer and how petrifying it was. And we nearly died one night. And, you know, there's a moment where I'm going completely off subject now, where we hear from Homer that Odysseus gets washed up after a storm on, a, on an island and he decides to stay for seven years. And we were spent a night where we nearly thought that we were going to die. And we ended up on Mykonos. And I thought... I'm just going to stay here for a bit. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to carry on to the next island. I'm going to hang out some, and, you know. meet some hot young locals exactly. and stay here for seven years. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. I've worked with the team that you're working on that occasion and they've told me all about your dramatic night. On oh, that they? Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a real, it's a yeah, real thing. It's the, a real thing. The fix are passed down. Not even made up. No, it's yeah. not even made up. Someone was sick. The cameraman yeah. was, was yeah, sailing the boat. Still here to tell the story. So anyway, so by boats, I would say, you know, that's an extraordinary thing. I adore going to Turkey, Turkey A's, we should now call it, because there are more archaeological remains there than proportionally than any other nation. So, you know, there's always something to discover. But my next journey is I'm going through Arabia, so I'm on the trail of the Nabataeans. Oh, yeah, very that's, good. That's exciting the, new sites. Yeah, very really interesting. Uh, new sites as in new to many people. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, I... I do love the, it's a cliche, but I love the pyramid, mainly also because next door to it is that astonishing boat, yes. that royal barge, which yes. is the sort of overlooked when people go there, but yes. it's just the most beautiful sailing vessel, uh, well, river craft I've ever seen in my life. Completely. Again, four and a half thousand years old. Yeah. And you can... Flat packed. Flat at the, packed. At the base of the pyramid and they've rebuilt it. Yes. Astonishing. Yeah. yeah. And there's this, you know, almost certainly Khufu would have travelled in yeah. that on the Niles. So it would have been a royal barge and they put it there because it's ocean that he might ascend to the heavens by barge. Yeah. So I know, beautiful. It's a beautiful site. I mean, the one thing I would say about the Giza pyramid is don't do what a lot of people do is think, I'm going to go to Egypt. Go just to the pyramid. Yep. Go and spend a week there. Yep. You'll have a and, and walk around, get all those yeah. strange angles, different light, different times of day. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. It's wonderful. Exactly. Bethany, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You've written a wonderful book called The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. So go out and get that, everybody. Pyramids on the front. The pyramid is on the front. Was I... there much debate about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> No, there was about how much gold we should put on it because it's got gold on it. I said, no, it should just be gold on the top because that was what happened oh, in course. real life. Then people said, your book cover isn't real life. It's a book cover. Yes. So there's a gold all over the pyramid on the book. And we should say that so of the, all the seven ones in the ancient world, the only one really standing that you get a full sense of today is the pyramid. It's the pyramid. Yeah. It's the virtually intact. It's the oldest. And if I had to choose one, I would say that one. It is a, a marvel of humankind. Thank you very much. You're a marvel. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you're enjoying our Egypt week. We have more tomorrow. Ramesses II. Was he great? Was he just a master of self-promotion? And don't forget to follow the show wherever you're listening for your next episode to drop into your feed. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.